Our message this morning is entitled, Standing Still, Standing Still. Now just in a word, as a form of introduction, our world is a place of many battles. Now, that is to say, it's a place of fighting. I do my best to avoid confrontation. There was a time in my life when I enjoyed a little bit of a skirmish. When I was a child, you didn't have Xbox, you didn't have the Internet, you didn't have PlayStation, and so what little boys would do to keep themselves occupied is to go outside and to get into fistfights with each other. And no one gets hurt because you're all small, and it is what it is. I'm sure some of you, by the looks on your faces, kind of grew up in the same sort of environment. This is a world, though, that is full of many battles, and much as we try to avoid them, it is an inevitability in this world that the battles will come. This is a place of fighting. Now, obviously, there are many physical battles raging in the world today. It's just the fact of the matter. You turn on the news at night if you're a person that watches news, and I would probably recommend at this point to turn that off and to do something more productive. But if you're a person who watches the news or reads the news, you know that it is a place that is full of, of fightings from the local scale, violence in the streets, people being shot, people being injured. My dad was a Birmingham police officer for his entire career, and he always dreaded the holidays that we look forward to so much because domestic violence would skyrocket because everyone's at home, and a lot of the people that are home are drinking. And so between people being at home and people drinking, they go back to what they know to do. They begin to fight. And so his job was very busy this time of year. You have greater battles in the world. You find people that riot in streets and resort to violence to try to make their point about what they believe ought to happen in a nation's future, whether it be a political issue or what they consider to be an issue of justice. We have... Wars and rumors of wars in the world. If you tuned in to the news any this week, you might notice more wars and rumors of wars as certain figures, one particular nuclear scientist on the other side of the world was assassinated and suddenly the world begins to gasp and hold their breath in the fear that there will be a, another war. I'm thankful as a father of people who are of the age to go and to fight in war, that our country has not been involved in wars in recent years. But it is a place many times of violence. And by the way, what we'll study today, two of the examples that we'll consider are examples of great violence. But the world is a world, a place of fighting. And as bad as we might think that we have to engage in battle in this world, whether personally, individually, or one nation against another, we're all, if we be God's children, engaged in spiritual warfare. I want to use the book of Ephesians chapter 6 to begin this morning's message by framing your thoughts concerning the warfare that we have to fight, but this is just a place that we'll use to springboard into some thoughts from the Old Testament. Paul wrote, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles there means the trickery, the deceit, the deception. Satan tricks you to do things that are destructive, things that you ought not to be doing. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
Paul writes. You might look at his life and his experience and see often that man of God wrestling with flesh and blood. Paul was beaten multiple times. He was arrested multiple times. He was constantly under assault from people that despised him because of what he preached. He would eventually be martyred for his faith in Christ. And yet he says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, because of this, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, and then Paul goes on describing this armor of God that we've talked about a number of times in recent weeks, particularly when we studied the concept of prayer as he exhorts in verse 18, to pray always with prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. We have a warfare. There is a devil. He is real. And one of the greatest ways that he has deceived the world around us today is by tricking us all that he doesn't exist, that he's only a mere matter of mythology, but Satan is real and he will do everything he can to destroy you. You, my friends, are in a war. I think no one is in more danger in the world than when he is in the middle of a battleground and does not realize it. And sadly, that's the condition of many Christians in America today. In the midst of a war, unaware that they're even in a battlefield, and what they become is prime targets to be picked off and destroyed by the enemy. Whether it be stepping on a landmine or being sniped from 300 yards away, we're in a battle, we're in a war, and if we're not careful, we can be destroyed. In addition to the warfare that Satan would bring against us, the wiles of the devil, each and every one of us has a warfare within, again, if we be God's children. You see, a child of God has two natures. The nature of Adam that he was born with as he was conceived by his mother and his father and born into this world. Every one of us is a child of Adam, and because of that, we have the nature of Adam. What is the nature of Adam? Sin, violence. Destruction, lying, cheating, stealing, the way of man. We're all born with that nature because we're the children of Adam. But if we belong to Christ, we also have another nature, the nature of the Spirit. And we know the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. We have that nature within us because we belong to Christ. And these two natures are at constant odds with each other. The flesh lusting against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh so that you could not do the things that you would. And as we read in the book of Romans chapter 7, even when I would do good, what is present with me? Evil is present with me. And so we are very much at war even within ourselves. We ought to be people who trust God's Word and live our lives according to the standards of His Word because we cannot trust ourselves. You often hear so many times in the world today, just follow your heart and everything will be okay. That's exactly what got us into this mess in the beginning of time. Don't follow your heart. It's desperately wicked. Don't have more esteem for yourself because we ought to think soberly. 
We ought to esteem God. We ought to reverence Him. We ought to obey His Word. And then your life will be well. Life will be well with you. Does that mean that everything will go your way? No. Does it mean that you'll be prosperous and healthy? No. But you'll have a peace that passeth all understanding as you look for the next world to come, a world that will be perfect, a world that will be prosperous, a world that Jesus died to save you to. Now, as we think about warfare today, I introduced the thought with the title, Standing Still. Standing Still. The Old Testament is full of stories of warfare. A few years ago, my oldest was getting into filmmaking, and he wanted to be in filmmaking. That's something that he wanted to do for a career, and God has blessed that to happen in his life. But he made all of these as a 13-year-old boy, all of these war videos. And as a parent, that really bothered me, not because I was concerned about the content, but I was concerned about what other people thought about him producing that content. If you followed his channel back then, you know it was one shoot 'em up war video after another, and it would be him and his friends. You know, every military is comprised of 13-year-olds. To them, it looked cool, but... To the adults in the world, maybe it didn't look so realistic, having 13-year-olds going on top-secret missions. But I was so concerned, not because of the content, but because of what other people would think, because that's how we are so many times in this world. We worry more about what other people think than what God thinks or what maybe the Word of God would espouse to us. Because, you know, being a homeschooled dad, I don't know if you know this or not, but the homeschool community is a little uptight. Is that news to anyone? I can't believe they would do that. But the thought that I just kept going back to in my mind is, well, and I gave him some ground rules, no bad words, no vulgarity, no grotesque violence, but if you want to make shoot 'em up videos, make shoot 'em up videos, whatever. The thought that I went back to in my mind is, these videos are not a fraction of how violent and bloody the Old Testament is. It would do us all a lot of good to read God's Word, particularly the Old Testament. It is a book full of violence and war, destruction, conquering, conquest, vengeance, judgments, plagues. 2020 doesn't hold a candle to some of the cultures and what they experienced in the Old Testament as far as suffering and God's vengeance and wrath and judgment, things such as that. The Old Testament's a very violent book. And I say book, it's a compilation of books, but as a volume of books, it is a very violent volume. There were times when the nation of Israel fought battles. Many times the nation of Israel fought battles. Their birth, if you will, as a nation was one in controversy and suffering and plague and affliction. There were battles that they won. There were many battles that they fought and lost. I want you to understand the reality of that. When they went to fight those battles and they lost, people died. We've all seen action movies. We love action movies. I like comic book superhero movies. But you see these same actors playing different roles in various movies and... You know, they die on film, and you know that the guy's really okay, and you'll see him in the next movie that he contracts to play in, but this is real life. People don't come back to life. They're dead. The sword's driven through them, the arrow pierces through them, the spear pierces through them, and they are gone from this world. 
It's real. There are no resets. There are no do-overs. You don't press the button on the remote that says reset. The game starts over. You get to do it all over again. Young people, let me make a point out of that as a tangent. There are no do-overs in this life. There are no do-overs. And if you destroy your life, it is the only life you have to destroy. Side point. People really died. And it wasn't sanitary. It wasn't neat and compartmentalized. These battles would take place and the ground would be soaked with blood. The bodies of deceased men laying everywhere, limbs, weapons, clothing, shoes. It was what we would say disgusting to think about in our modern sophisticated sensibilities. But it was everyday life for the majority of humans in human history up until this point. And it's even everyday life for some people who live on the other side of the world. Praise God from whom all blessings flow that we live in the land in which we live that is blessed with so much peace. There have been times in our country's history, particularly during the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, when our land had that violence in it. A few years ago, we were on a preaching trip in Louisiana, and what we like to do when we go on preaching trips is we go see things. We use it as an opportunity to go and see historic Sites. I like to pick forts because I figure if it lasted through the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, my kids can't break it because they're destructive people. And so we, we were touring a battlefield, the Battle of New Orleans, New Orleans. And in this cemetery there, there are all these white crosses and you're driving through. It's this long road with a cul-de-sac at the end and then you come back. It's a national cemetery not far from that Battle of New Orleans, the last battle of the War of 1812, and there's just all these monuments from people who died in war, many of them in that war, who gave their lives to die for something that they believed in. That's something we ought to be very thankful for, men who are willing to lay down their lives for those that they love. But it was war. It really happened. We were driving through, and I believe it was Lydia said, Dad, why would all these people die? said, because they loved their wives and children enough to lay down their lives for freedom. That's why they died. But you get a very powerful reminder of warfare and violence and death when you tour one of those sites. Those men were young men, many of them who were buried there, most of them who were buried there. And they gave their lives for a cause that they believed in, defending their family. All these battles you read about in the Old Testament, they're not stories. They're not myths. They really happened. People really died. It was really a violent place. There were times when they fought and they lost because they didn't go to the battle in faith. There were times that God sent battle to them that they couldn't win as a judgment. There were times, many times, that they went and engaged in war and God said, you're going to go, you're going to be victorious, and people died, and yet they were victors. And sometimes they fought wars and none of them died because God blessed them so. But there's a very special class of warfare in the Old Testament that I want to talk to you a little bit about today. And that's why we've entitled our message, Stand Still. Stand Still. The times that were few and far between, when there was a battle to be fought, it was more than they could bear... The battle was greater than the strength that they had, 
And so God himself fought the battle for them and was victorious. By the way, might I say that God has a 100% success rate in winning battles. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He works his will among the army of heaven, the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? Daniel 4.35. I was reading about different stories of God conquering people and just obliterating his enemies this past week. You know, there was a time when an angel went and slayed more than 180,000 Assyrians in one night, just simply annihilated them. And that's just an angel. When Jesus was being tried, he said, Do you not realize that I can summon legions of angels to come and to fight on my behalf? If one angel can kill hundreds of thousands without breaking a sweat, imagine what legions of angels would do. God commands an army. He's the Lord of hosts, which means large numbers, and his army, his military, has never lost a battle. They've never lost a war. God is always victorious. He's always successful. Our experience is one of faith, clinging unto Him, crying out to Him for His deliverance of us in our moments of affliction. When you realize that you're with Him, you feel so much better. You ever been with a really big guy? Okay, I'm not such a big guy. Now inside, I'm about 6'5 and 230 pounds, and I can bench press like 400 pounds and deadlift 1,000 pounds, but in reality... I'm like 5'8 and 150 pounds, and I can bench press 210, which for me is a pretty good and I And I can't even deadlift 300 pounds. Really small legs. Anyway. You ever been in public in a dangerous place with somebody that's like 6'2 and built like this and maybe has two or three pistols on them, and you're like, I'm with that guy? <laughs> Think about that perspective as it relates to our walk with God. I'm with that guy. If, if the one who's never lost a battle is on my side, what does that mean about the warfare? If God be for us, who can be against us? First place that I want to look today is back in the book of Exodus chapter 14. And I want to use these words to encourage you today that when there are battles that you and I cannot win, God will fight your battles. If it so be His will, He will fight your battles for you, and He is always victorious when He gets involved. He is always victorious when He gets involved. Exodus chapter 14, to give you the backstory of what we're considering first, there's a couple of Old Testament examples that I want to give you, and then I want to look at a New Testament example of a battle that God has achieved the victory for. Remember that everything that we read in the Old Testament is pointing towards Christ. And so as we read these physical examples of warfare today, what I want you to remember is that every single victory, every single battle is pointing towards something, especially in occurrences like this where God himself will achieve the victory. The nation of Israel is leaving Egypt in Exodus chapter 14. There were at this point... Just to show you the sheer mass of the people of Israel, there were more than 600,000 men on foot. 600,000 men. Then there were the children. Then there were the women. And it doesn't say the women were on foot, so I take that to mean that they were the ones riding on the beast of burden, the livestock. 
That's kind of funny to me. You're marching out of Egypt, the men are walking, the children are walking, but the women are pampered and they're riding on the backs of the horses. They're headed out of Egypt. You've got probably a million and a half people that are leaving. If you've got 600,000 men, let's say you have 50 50 men, women, that's 1.2 million people. However many children they had, you might have 2 million people, you might have 3 million people, but you have this great host of people that are leaving Egypt. Again, 600,000 men. Egypt, to give you a word on them, was what we would call today a superpower. In fact, it was in the world at that time the superpower. Egypt was at this point built up because of the wisdom of a man named Joseph. Egypt had risen in the world as a world power prior to Joseph back in the book of Genesis. But you remember that there was going to be a famine in the land. And this famine was going to be a a very great dearth. It was going to cause the loss of food and health and eventually life because if there's no food and there's no water, people starve to death, they become ill. Diseases will begin to spread through a community because of the lack of health, and it's just a very dark time. But God gives this Pharaoh certain dreams, and he blesses him with this man Joseph, who was a Hebrew, an Israelite, to interpret the dreams and... He interprets these dreams as you have seven years of plenty, you have seven years of famine, so in the years of plenty, save up excess, build up your supply, and then you'll survive this season of seven years of famine. In the seven years of famine, other nations would come into Egypt and they would buy from them, which created great wealth for the nation of Egypt. And so as great as they were prior to Joseph's day, Joseph interprets these dreams. He's put in second of, in command of the entire nation of Egypt. He governs. He rules. The only person over him was Pharaoh himself. It was a time of great prosperity in Egypt because of everything that had taken place. This was the superpower. They had wealth. They had military might. They had the technology of that day in great, great number. You read about this later in the book of Exodus 14. You see them pursuing on chariots. That was technology. That was advanced technology for them. They were very dominant in this region. Their king, again, a man named Pharaoh, was many times worshipped as a god among the citizens of the nation of Egypt. Now, during the days of Joseph, the Egyptians favored the Hebrews, the Israelites, But you back up to the book of Genesis chapter 1, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. There arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. He said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. They're outnumbering us. They're having more children than we're having. And by the way, let me make a side point there. Having children is a blessing, and in every culture until our selfish American culture, having more children was a sign of prosperity and blessing. Let me just tell you young folks that are with us today, if God blesses you to have children, have children. Have children. 
Don't abstain from having children. You know, people say today, well, you need to pursue your education, then you need to pursue your career, then you need to be married, maybe live with someone for a while, then eventually get married, and then after you get married, just go ahead and have some children, if you feel like it, maybe 35 or 40 years old. And by that time, just from personal experience, let me tell you, it's a lot more difficult to have children in your late 30s than it is your early 20s. Might it be that God designed us to have children in our early 20s? I don't know. Gee, seems like it's naturally done then. I would encourage all of you to get married and have children. By the way, God's word says, I would that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion for the adversary to speak reproachfully. If God blesses you with children, then have as many children as you can have. Societies fall when people don't have enough children. The American perspective on this boggles my mind. Well, we just don't have enough room for any more people. Have you ever driven through Oklahoma, for instance? Have you ever driven through the continent? I've driven from coast to coast, Great Plains to the Florida Peninsula, and I can tell you that there's plenty more room in America for people. Anyway, children of Israel increased and abundantly and multiplied. And because they outgrew Egypt, Egypt got very worried. They became... They became very jealous because the Hebrew men were big and strong, and the women had children easier than the Egyptian women, and it caused jealousy. And they begin to worry, and that worry leads them to conspire. The people of the children of Israel are more wise and, excuse me, are more mighty than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. And that's not saying, let's get them out of the land. What they're saying is, what if they join with our enemies and defeat us and leave? So what does Egypt do? They set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python, Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. Now think about that. As Egypt afflicts Israel, Israel grows. In the New Testament, fast forward, the more the Romans persecuted the church the more the church grew. The more the Jews persecuted the church, the more the church grew. In church history, the times of greatest persecution have been the times of most explosive growth among the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because God is not mocked when his enemies and when Satan attempts to stomp out his cause, God blesses it to grow that much more. We talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. This, remember, is his story. This is his agenda. This is his world. This is about him. All of it is about him. We're created for his glory we're created to worship Him and experience Him and enjoy Him forever. And this place is His world. We're not to be like the world around us, losing our minds right now with worry and fear. Remember, God is on His throne. 
they attempt to stomp out and enslave the children of Israel. And what does God bless them to do? To grow even more. Now, what is it that caused them to do this in the first place? They're having too many babies. We need to deal with them. And yet, they attempt to enslave them and stop that. So what does God bless them to do? Grow even more. Now, another type of persecution that they would experience in verses 15 through 20, Pharaoh says, okay, these Hebrew boys are goodlier, and there's more of them being born than Egyptians. So what we're going to do... I'm going to have the midwives slay the firstborn children out of Egypt. Or excuse me, the menfolk children out of Egypt. Getting ahead of myself, firstborn. These midwives, in verse 17, fear God. They did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And from this, you have the deliverer in that age, Moses, come into the world. You remember that his parents rather than allowing him to be slaughtered at birth, place him in an ark and send him down the river, and he ends up being found by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in Pharaoh's house. Nice riddle if you want to ask somebody, how many people were in Moses' ark? And most people start, well, they start quoting Noah's children and Noah's children's wives and Noah's wife and say, well, eight. You know, how many was in Moses' ark? And they say, well, Moses wasn't in an ark, but Moses was in an ark. How many people were in there? One, Moses. His parents made an ark, a little vessel, sent him down the river, trusted him in God's providence. The midwives feared God. They didn't as the king commanded them, but saved the men, children alive. God bless these women, by the way, for that, these midwives. And might I just interject that this was an opportunity, or an occurrence rather, of civil disobedience, that God approved of. They didn't do as they were commanded by the government because if the government commands you to do something that's sinful, you don't do it. And so God blessed them to have houses in verse 21. The midwives feared God. He made them houses. And so we find in Exodus chapter 1, first of all, Egypt puts Israel into slavery. And then Egypt resorts to genocide. In affliction, Israel grew. God would call a man eventually named Moses. And we all know Moses, that great man of God from the Old Testament. He spends... 40 years of his life there. He goes and he spends another 40 years of his life away. As an old man, God calls him and he sends him into Egypt from whence he left to call upon Pharaoh to let God's people go. Moses said, I'm a man of a stammering tongue. We recently read the great burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, tell them, I am hath sent you. Moses goes in there and he is used by God to usher in certain plagues. Now it starts with a staff and this isn't a plague, but it's a sign and he casts it on the ground and it becomes a serpent and the magicians of Egypt did the same and Moses 
serpent staff swallowed up their serpent staff. We're all familiar with the occurrence of Moses going in there, taking his brother Aaron to speak as a mouthpiece for him. But God would send ten plagues into Egypt for their treatment of Israel, their mistreatment of Israel, and because of Pharaoh's unwillingness to let them go. Now, just to list this off, these off for you, first of all, ten plagues, you have water turned to blood. Now, I don't know about you, but if I turned the faucet on to take a shower this morning when I got out of bed and blood came out of the shower, not getting in the shower, but like, pinch me, am I sleeping? I need a young priest and an old priest. <laughs> What's going on in the bathroom? Everything's turned to blood. Water is turned to blood. And then you have where God sent frogs out of the river. Now, again, the, the feral Winslet kiddos would probably be out there picking them up and taking them in and playing with them and throwing them and all sorts of other things, but you have frogs. Next, you have lice as a plague. Next, you have swarms of what the King James Bible translates flies. Imagine swarms of flies. I kind of thought this past month that maybe we were under some sort of divine judgment here in Madison County because of the swarms, swarms of wasps. Did any of you notice that you could walk outside and there were just wasps everywhere? Maybe that was only my subdivision, but you're walking around and just wasps everywhere. That was actually a plague that God sent upon Canaan's land. He ran the inhabitants of many of the Canaanite cities out with wasps, hornets. But in this case, God sends swarms, and in the KJV, it's swarms of flies. The next thing you have is pestilence of livestock. Now you take away the livestock, you take away the food source. You've probably seen jokes, surely this isn't true, nobody could be this uninformed, but there was a, what I presume was a fake op-ed letter to the editor that went into a newspaper years ago, and it was a lady criticizing hunting, saying that people should go buy their food from the grocery store where animals didn't have to die. <laughs> All the turkey we ate this week was once a living bird walking around on terra firma. The ham that I've eaten every day since Thanksgiving, because I would prefer ham over turkey, was once a pig living in a farm. You take away the livestock, you take away the food source. You've got no eggs. You've got no meat. You've got no milk. This is starvation. Somebody got excited. Milk? <laughs> Take away the livestock, take away the food. Then they were stricken with boils. Now boils are a painful, swollen, sometimes infected sore on the skin. Very miserable, sometimes it can be very itchy. You might remember that Job, when he was afflicted, took broken pieces of pottery and scratched himself because he itched from boils. They were afflicted. God afflicted them next with hail, hailstones, thunderstorms that drop hailstones over everything. That's destructive, by the way. In 2009, 
We had a very great hailstorm that went through this county. It was during the April Union meeting. We were at Hurricane Primitive Baptist Church, and it they have a metal roof. It was very loud there. I looked outside after that had passed. Elsewhere, we have some folks from near Rainsville. That, that was, I believe, the year that the tornadoes went through and destroyed some things in, in Rainsville as well. That happened a couple of times since we've been here. That damaged our roof on our house so much that the insurance company gave us a new roof. The hood of my black car that I drove here today has three hail dents in it where a hailstorm dropped large rocks of ice and damaged the metal hood on my car. Hail is destructive. Imagine when God sends it as a judgment, what it does to homes and people and crops. Very destructive. God sent locusts. Now, in this day and age, we refer to, when I was a little boy, we always called cicadas locust. But locust in that day was more like a large grasshopper. And actually, truth be told, there were several different types of insect that could be classified as locust. God sent locust. Next. No, it's not over. God sent darkness at the hand of Moses that would last for three days, darkness that was so dark you could feel it. Have you ever been in darkness so dark that you could feel the darkness? We've made a couple of trips. When I was growing up in high school or in elementary and middle school, one of the field trips we would take was to DeSoto Caverns. And they take you down into the bottom of this cave and they cut off all the lights and there is no light at all. No light source. You are in total pitch black darkness. And they'll tell you on the tour that if you're down there in that darkness for enough time, your eyes will actually stop working and you'll go blind. This was three days of darkness so long or so uh, intense rather that they could feel the darkness It's as if they could reach out and feel the darkness. And then lastly, the most severe of these plagues that God sent was the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. And you'll remember that it was at this time that God ushered a feast that they would continue that pointed to Christ all the time, all the way through time to the coming of the Lord Jesus, the Passover. God says, I'm going to pass through. I'm going to slay the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn of animals. Everything's firstborn is going to die. There's going to be a great cry unto, a great cry in Egypt this night. But you are going to take and slaughter a lamb. You're going to apply its blood to the sides and the top of your doorposts in your home. And when I pass through to destroy, when I pass through to judge, I'm going to see the blood and I pass over that house because the blood has been shed and applied to that house. What's that pointing to? The death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That night, the night of the Passover, all the firstborn from Pharaoh down to the Servants in Egypt, the firstborn died. Now he's close to home. I'm the firstborn. You think about it. Bethany looked at Hannah anyway. I don't know what that's about. (laughs) Firstborn. We ought to look at experiences such as that and say, praise God for the blood. Praise God for the lamb. Their king, Pharaoh, their primary adversary, is experiencing a condition in this day that is known as hardening. Hardening. God hardened his heart. 
And we find this as an example of God's sovereignty in Romans chapter 9. God hardens his heart that his name, God's name, might be published in all the world. Think about it. If the most powerful man in the world is destroyed by God after waging war against God, God's name is published and he's magnified. And that's his purpose with Pharaoh. Now, to be very clear, God doesn't take a soft-hearted, kind-hearted little Cub Scout named Pharaoh and make him into a mean person. Pharaoh's a wicked man. He's an evil man. He's an ungodly man. And so God hardens his heart through a couple of different ways. Number one, his heart is hardened through the lack of graces. What do you mean by that? Understand, everything you understand about God is through revelation. You know what you know because God has revealed it unto you. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto you, but his Father which is in heaven, as he says in Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 11 says the same thing. We understand what we know about God through grace. We have repentance through grace. Our hearts are softened by grace. This man had a hard and stony heart. God has taken our heart of stone and given us what? A heart of flesh, that is to say a soft heart. His heart is hardened through the lack of, the withholding of these graces that would enable, that would facilitate Things like repentance. Repentance is a grace as much as it is an act, something that God blesses us with. Number two, Pharaoh is hardened through external circumstances. Now, we recently talked about this, so we won't labor the point very long. But there are several variations of this phrase. The same heat that hardens the clay melts the wax. Sometimes the word steel is used, and, and that's true too. You harden steel or you harden metal by heating it up and cooling it off and heating it up and cooling it off and hitting it with a hammer. Pharaoh's heart's hardened as God gives a plague and withdraws the plague and gives the plague and withdraws the plague. So you could say through external factors is his heart hardened in addition to the lack of grace that is given unto him. In chapter 14, you have the last climactic event of the nation of Israel's experience in Egypt. Now this is some million and a half to two million, maybe as many as three million nomadic people who have been enslaved. They have no nation of their own at this point. There's land that's God uh, that God has promised to them. They are downcast. They are neglected. They have suffered. Their cry has come up to God in heaven. And you have the strongest military in the world that's about to pursue them. What do they do? Exodus 14, the children of Israel leave. God tells them, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He shall follow after them. I will be honored upon Pharaoh. And upon all his hosts, and there's a side point there I want to give you. I can honor God or I can be honored. God can be honored by me. Pharaoh didn't honor God, but God was honored by Pharaoh when God judged him. There's a point in that if you think really hard about it. Even concerning the wicked and his judgment of them at the end of time. Oh, I want to be a man that honors God, not a man that God is honored by when he judges.
All the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh is told what has happened, that the children of Israel have fled. And he begins to say, we're going to go after them and we're going to destroy them. And so he sends 600 chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt, the captain over every one of them. He sends his military. Now think about that. The military might have 600 chariots. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with a high hand. The Egyptians pursued them. Verses 10 through 12, the children of Israel see Pharaoh drawing nigh. And what do they do? Now think about all they've seen. Think about all they've heard. They remember the cry of the people of Egypt as the firstborn of Egypt is slaughtered. And yet they begin to murmur. They begin to complain. We're never to be murmuring, complaining people. Here's a bulletin for 2020. We're not to be murmurers. 2020 has been the year of the most murmuring that I have ever seen in my 39 years walking around on this planet. I have never seen complaining like I've seen this year. I started to wonder if snakes were going to come in the camp and bite people like they did when they murmured against Moses. We're not to be murmurers or complainers. We're to be rejoicing people. People who sing praise to God, even in the adversity and affliction. Children of Israel begin to say, were there no graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out here to die? What a statement is that? Are there no graves? They have cemeteries in Egypt. You bring us out here to die by the Red Sea. Here we are pinned between the Red Sea, which is the Red Sea, not the Sea of Reeds. The Red Sea and the chariots of Pharaoh... You brought us out here to kill us. Wherefore hast thou dealt with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word which we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? No, that isn't what you said. It isn't what you said at all. It's what you call revisionist history. They're shifting the blame to Moses. When Moses is obeying God, what should they have been doing? Praying to God? And waiting for his blessing, his deliverance, because he had promised to. I want you to notice verse 13. Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. The Egyptians whom ye have seen today... You shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. What does God tell them? Stand there. Don't do something, stand there. I say that sarcastically in my home. Don't just do something, stand there. When everybody's standing there not cleaning, when I say clean, or Rachel and I are doing something, working on something, and everyone's just standing there looking around like, gee, it's a shame mom and dad are cleaning this all by themselves. Don't just do something. Stand there. God says, don't do something. Stand there. Stand there. Just stand there. I want you to watch and see what I'm about to do. Long story short, God has Moses 
raise his arms, the Red Sea parts. Walls of water on each side. Israel dry ground. This is caused by the wind, according to Scripture. God does use the wind to raise this, and obviously the wind dries the ground. They pass on dry ground. God appears between them in that pillar of a cloud and a pillar of fire by day and by night to separate from them, them from the Egyptians. Interesting statement, as is in verse 24, it came to pass that in the morning watch, this occurs overnight, that the Lord looked unto the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of the fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians. The Lord looked upon them this way. They feel to be in the presence of God, and so they took off their chariot wheels that they drave them so heavily, which means that they run so hard from the presence of God that the wheels fall off the chariots. You know, we, we have that expression in our modern day and age, I'm going to drive the wheels off of that vehicle. And that's usually our philosophy when we buy a vehicle. Because they cost so much, I'm going to drive the wheels off that thing. And what we mean by that is I'm going to drive it till it dies. They drove the wheels off the chariots. I don't know if you've ever noticed that verse. They ran so hard, the wheels fall off the chariots. Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. They knew what was happening. The Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come again upon the Egyptians and upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. Moses lifts his arms out and he makes a motion. The walls of the sea collapse and all of the Egyptians are drowned in the Red Sea. Pharaoh included. The Charleston Heston movie, The Ten Commandments, where they go back and tell Pharaoh what happened and his wife's kind of digging it at him. That didn't occur. The man drowned. He drowned in the sea. The Lord drowned Pharaoh and his host in the sea. God fought that battle for them. I'd encourage you to read chapter 15, which is the song of Moses and the children of Israel. What had God just done? Look at verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hands of the Egyptians. Now there's another example that I wanted to give you. And for the sake of time, I'm going to leave it with you as a homework assignment. But it's found in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 20. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat was king of Judah. And there was a confederacy of other nations that came against the children of Judah, to destroy them. You read this in verse 1. Moab and Ammon and the Ammonites, they all come together with these other places to do battle against Judah and to slay Judah. There was no way Judah could defeat this confederacy of nations. And so what Jehoshaphat does, he begins to pray and he calls for a fast and he begs God that he would deliver them and a prophet of God, Jehaziel, comes and tells them, God is going to fight for you. And so what does he tell them? You shall not need fight. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. The same exact thing that Moses told the children of Israel. Stand still and see the salvation that God will give you. So what these men do, instead of like the children of Israel where they grumble and they murmur, these men begin to worship. They begin to praise God. 
Jehoshaphat appoints singers who go and sing out in front of the camp of Israel. That night, God confounds this confederacy, sends confusion. They think they're being attacked by people, each different camp, and they begin to fight one another and they slaughter one another so that when the children of Judah go out and look the next day, all they see are bodies on the ground. And they go through and they pick all the jewels off those that are deceased. And the spoil was so much that they couldn't even carry it all back. What did God tell them? Stand ye still and see the salvation of the Lord. Now I wanted to use this, and it's been on my mind for several, several weeks as a way to encourage you in this very troubled time. There are sometimes battles that we fight that we have to engage in. But there are battles that God fights for us because the enemy is too great for us to go up and wage war against. I'm going to close today because as our motto is here, whatever text we take, whatever subject we consider, we begin and we do what with it? We run as quickly as we can to the cross. 2,000 years ago, our God sent His Son into the world to fight a battle for me and for you that we could not fight. The enemy was too great. It was greater than Egypt. It was greater than the confederacy of the Ammonites and the Moabites. It was a battle that we could not win. And our Savior Jesus Christ fought the battle for us. In the book of Romans chapter 5, we read, For when we were yet without strength, verse 6, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And by the way, that's me and you, the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. What was the word that Moses uses and Israel uses and God uses in Exodus chapter 14? God did save Israel from the hand of Egypt. You know, so many times in Scripture, Egypt is used as a picture of sin. They were redeemed from Egypt. We sang and we heard and we prayed some words about redemption this morning. They were redeemed out of Egypt. God has redeemed us by the blood of His Son. Now I'm going to close today with a simple statement that Jesus made upon the cross from the book of John chapter 19. But before I read this, I want you to understand that as it pertained to your debt of sin that you owed to God, your ability to do anything about it, we were completely helpless, completely powerless, completely useless, completely impotent. There was nothing that you or I could do to save ourselves from our sins. 
And so God, as he foreshadowed with so many, so many battles that they couldn't fight in the Old Testament, sent a Savior. I have to think about that language. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. As Jesus hung upon the cross of Calvary, rather than standing still and seeing the salvation, his disciples had all fled. But there at the cross, you have a few. You have his mother, who loved him, bore him, who nursed him, who dressed him, who changed him, who cared for him, who who so deeply loved him. You have a few of the women, as the menfolk ran and hid. You have John, that disciple whom Jesus loved, who's here present, recording these words for us. Those few that didn't run and hide, in a sense, they stood still, and they saw the salvation of the Lord. As Jesus hung upon the cross of Calvary, he knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. There was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it to his mouth. And when he had received the vinegar, what did he say? He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. What was finished when Jesus bowed his head and gave up the ghost? the salvation of his people from their sins. The battle we could not fight was won by our God who became us to die for us that we might live with him forever. Praise God, the one battle that we had no chance at winning, Jesus has brought the victory in. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this message of hope that we find in the occurrence of Israel leaving Egypt and Jehoshaphat and the victory that you gave there against Ammon and Moab. Lord, we find these occurrences in Scripture where you were, you were so gracious and you told them simply to stand still and to see the salvation of the Lord. And we know, Father, that that's pointing to when the second person of the Godhead, when Jehovah himself would be made flesh, the Word made flesh, and dwell among us. And Lord, we know that there was nothing we could do to win that battle. There was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. We were yet your enemies. We were yet ungodly. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But Father, you sent your Son to die for us to win that victory. As we sang this morning, Lord, we have victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Lord, as we just come out of this week that we know is Thanksgiving, above all the things that we should be thankful for in this world, it's that, that you have saved us. You loved us, called us with a holy calling. Lord, we have stood still. We've seen that salvation. We know, Lord, that it's an accomplished reality. And so, Lord, we pray that we spend the rest of our days and all of eternity praising you for this deliverance that you've given us that we couldn't bring for ourselves. Forgive us of our sins, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, and we say, amen.